Welcome back to Product Market Fit, a podcast for early stage founders and operators with practical lessons to boost your startup's growth. I'm your host, Moshe Paltrak, and my guest today is Tony Beltramelli, founder and CEO of Wizard, a super cool AI-powered design and prototyping tool. FYI, it's pronounced wizard, but it's spelled with a U. So if you want to check them out, go to uizard.io. I had so much fun chatting with Tony that it was hard not to go off on too many tangents. We discussed GPT-4 and the state of AI, Wizard's journey from research project through alpha, beta, and finally public launch, customer retention, fundraising, and more. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. As always, I love it when you reach out to me with your feedback via email at hello at pmfpod.com or on LinkedIn or Twitter. And if you really want to help us out, drop a quick rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you love to listen. It's much appreciated. The Product Market Fit Podcast is brought to you by Growth.co. That's growth without the O.co. Growth offers fractional CMOs paired with best-in-class digital marketing execution to support early-stage startup success. With a focus on seed and Series A companies, Growth has helped a number of SaaS, digital health, and e-commerce startups build their go-to-market function and scale up. To learn more and book a free consultation, go to growth.co, that's G-R-W-T-H dot C-O. Now, please enjoy my conversation with Tony Beltramelli, founder and CEO of Wizard. Hello, Tony. Welcome. I'm really excited to have you on today. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to share some more stories and scars. So we're going to jump right in. Why don't you tell us what is Wizard and who do you serve? Of course. So Wizard is a design tool for non-designers. And it's basically solving the issue that most product team have, which is that if you are not a designer, not a, you know, Adobe or Figma wizard, uh, you're probably going to have issues converting your ideas into tangible prototype mockups, wireframe that you can then share with your team. So wizard basically enabled folks to design the ideas easily. And we took a bet on making this experience easy by using AI to make it fun, make it fast, make it easy for folks to just turn their brainwaves into product ideas and, and designs. Fantastic. You're using AI to generate those designs. As a non-designer, I can create a fully functioning mock-up, simply just drawing on, on a piece of paper or on a whiteboard. So we look at AI in our product suite as, an, as a design assistant, and there are many ways to invoke this design assistant. One of them is what you described. You could start sketching your ideas on the back of a napkin or on the whiteboard, snap a picture. And then we'll use machine learning and AI to turn this rough sketch into a design that you can then customize and edit. Another entry point is to say, hey, I'm a marketing leader or I'm a product team and I already have a product or website that I want to modify, make a different version of it. And then you can take a screenshot, import it into Wizard, and we'll basically also use machine learning and AI to turn this screenshot into something you can actually edit and customize and build upon. And then the third angle, this third like AR entry point, is something we've announced only four weeks ago now, which is called Auto Designer, which it enables you to actually type your ID in plain English, and then we'll generate four or five screens to get you started and overcome what we like to call the blank page syndrome when you you know have no idea how to start, but you have some great ideas in your head. Yeah, I'm really excited for that. I'm on, I'm on the wait list. So looking oh, forward cool. <laughs> to giving that a spin because being able to just write out in plain English, what you're looking to achieve as a non-designer and having that tool build it out, at least the V1 is a huge step for anybody that likes to tinker and prototype and put something out there. So uh, how did you come up with the idea? I think it started as a research project, right? It did actually. We didn't start doing AI just because everybody's talking about generative AI today. The 
inception of the company back in 2018, which was actually an AI research project, uh, where back then the thought was, hey, can we use AI and machine learning to help designer and developer work better together by taking design input and then convert code or convert intermediate design stages? Got it. Your background is in AI as a researcher, as a data scientist? I'm a software engineer and a data scientist by training, and I've been doing machine learning in grad school and then uh, at my first work after university. So in the five years you, you launched in 2018, or you started working on this in 2018, you've gone through multiple iterations, I'm assuming, in product and in thinking about like your business model and who you're serving. Yeah. Can you walk me through that journey and, and kind of key learnings that you've had along the way in understanding the core functionality of the product and who it's best suited for, who your ideal customer profile is? Yeah, of course. So 2018, we started to build a real product around kind of like the AI core that I was building in my studio apartment after work hours. And the idea back then, as I mentioned, was like, we thought we could use AI and machine learning to help designers and developers go faster from zero to one, ultimately from one to 10. Once we started having an alpha that was ready for being used, and we started inviting people in we realized that the folks that were actually getting the most value from this product were not designers and developers. There were the other part of the product team, which is the product manager, the marketing specialist, basically people that didn't have the skill set to do some of the things we're automating with the AI component. And it took all the painful iteration of an early stage startup to go through alpha, beta, listening to customers, iterating the product to kind of like find the sweet spot where we basically realized, yeah, our core customers, no doubt, they are non-designers, product folks, and marketing teams. So do you focus exclusively on that ICP right now of product managers, founders, as you said, non-designers? Yeah, that's correct. That's where we believe we can provide the most value. And this is where we are focused 100% of our time and effort. Got it. Talk to me about the, uh, the launches you mentioned that you went through, alpha, beta. How did you run those? Was it a closed alpha or beta? Did you have your own kind of community that you were tapping into? Did you launch on Product Hunt? Speak to me about that process. Because our technology was quite novel, even at the time. So actually, fun fact, <laughs> you've probably all seen the GPT-4 demo where I think the CTO of OpenAI taking a napkin sketch and then turning it into a UI design. That's actually what we have built originally in 2018 in our alpha. It was as magical back then as it seems to be now. And so just having this kind of like demo was basically how we acquired our first thousand users by just showing a video, having a waitlist and people could sign up to it. It was a closed alpha from this waitlist and eventually a closed beta through the waitlist. And we were only confident enough that our product was ready for prime time in February 2021 when we really like open it up to everybody. So it's been closed for the entire period of time from inception, alpha, beta. It took a while to build what we thought was good enough for prime time. You stole my, my thunder. I was going to ask about that specifically around <laughs> just uh, last week or the week before GPT-4 was released and your use case was one of the main components of the demo of like, hey, you can turn a napkin sketch into a functioning prototype. So how do you think about building something now that OpenAI is releasing these super advanced large language models, LLMs, that can do a lot more than obviously was available in 2018. Do you see potential competition coming from OpenAI or other people building on OpenAI? How do you stay in front of it? What's your thought process around that? We've been working on this for a long time. And so we understand the domain of design, the application of AI, like really deeply. Probably like the team that understand this in the world, the deepest, right? Because we've worked on this for so many years. 
And so even though OpenAI demo was showcasing that you can actually turn a sketch into a UI, we know where it's going to break and we know why, because we've done this for so long. And even though GPT-4 is out, that part where you input an image is still not available for developers. So I do believe they still have a lot of work to do to make it basically available to the wider audience. And then we've built other things around our product offering beyond just, you know, sketch to design. We have a suite of AI tools that people can check out on our website if they're interested in. My take is that GPT-4 is a fantastic general purpose model, but design is such a specific niche, a specific discipline, a specific domain, that it's probably going to take some time before this general purpose algorithm can do as well in design as a specialized algorithm like ours. And we even argue the same for people, right? We all are generally intelligent human beings, but it takes some special training and skills to be specialized in design. And so you could argue that, you know, what we've built is basically an AI model like GPT that actually went to a design school and know design really well. It's going to take some time before they can actually be on par with what we do, but ultimately we know it's going to happen. So how can we just, A, keep improving our model and B, also leverage large language model in our own stack? So we basically pair those two technologies together, what we've built, plus LLM to just have the best technology that we can possibly offer to our customers. Yeah, I agree with that. As it relates to OpenAI, I think that they're building a foundational piece that other people can build on top of, but I don't think that a generalized LLM can be better than a specialized model that is trained and retrained to focus on a very specific use case or problem, which is what you guys are doing. Of course, other people can build similar, but that's true in any case. I think it's just exacerbated now. Although I do have founders that I talk to, and obviously everybody's thinking about, should I incorporate AI into my product, into our roadmaps. One of the concerns is I'm going to spend all this time and money building something and it's going to be obsolete in three to six months. The pace of advancement is happening so quickly. How do I stay ahead of it while not wasting effort and resources, right? And there's companies that built on GPT-3 and they're struggling right now with the release of ChatGPT. Companies like Jasper copied that AI. They're losing subscribers because why would I pay $50 a month for that tool if I can basically get the same thing for free with ChatGPT or even $20 a month with OpenAI's ChatGPT+. The rapid pace is, I think, scaring some people as they're thinking about capital allocation and investment in specific products. So how do you think about that as it relates to building something that's going to be potentially outdated very quickly? I mean, I have a problem with products that are basically using AI as an afterthought, because typically the reason why we went for AI first is because we thought it was the best way to lower the barrier of entry to design and make a really easy user experience. But that means that the rest of the product is also thought of as easy to use. So the AI and the product are easy to use uniformly across the entire journey from the user experience. And if you look at all this AI strapped on an old product, I find that there's such a huge disconnect between the experience you have using the AI feature and then the rest of the tech, which is like still most of the time really complex. Microsoft is like bundling AI on top of everything they've built. And that's great. I think this is probably going to happen at some point, but ultimately it doesn't make Excel more easy to use. It's still Excel. And then there's this AI layer on top, which is, okay, I can automate some stuff and it's pretty cool, but you have this misalignment in some product, at least between the experience of using the AI stuff and then the rest of the product. So if folks are building something that's really deeply valuable and they want to strap AI on top, it needs to be really solving a real core issue. It can't just be a a nice add-on, in my opinion. No, I I agree that AI is the buzzword, but if it's not attaching core value to whatever it is that you're serving, then 
you haven't added anything, right? Maybe you'll get a little bit of buzz, you'll get a little bit of excitement around it or some press coverage potentially because you've hopped on the uh, hype du jour. But ultimately, if you're not building something that's lasting and solving a need, although I would argue a little bit on the Microsoft point, I'm done underestimating Microsoft under Satya Nadella. <laughs> I think that they've made a lot of good moves. They're doing a fantastic job. We'll see how that plays out. To the point of building AI for AI's sake, I would say also from a marketing perspective that you can't sell AI, right? You need to sell the solution. So I'm wondering if that maybe is a lesson you've learned in your growth with Wizard. Originally, you said you got your first thousand customers just because of the novelty of it, right? So that's just selling the AI, that's selling the buzz. But now you're selling the product, you're selling the value that the product sells, and it happens to be powered by AI, right? That's the, the underpinnings. So talk to me about that kind of that transition and that learning process. Actually, that's a really good question because in the beginning, as you said, the novelty, the fact that it was AI was the cool stuff people wanted to basically try the product for. And ultimately, at some point, so many companies were claiming to do AI and and none of them were actually doing AI. And so we've actually even distanced ourselves from AI, even though it was the core foundation of our product. And we were like just communicating about the value. What is it that you get when you use the product? Ease of use, save time and money. And we only started coming back to this AI narrative in our messaging probably about 12 months ago, because we could feel that the market has matured enough to understand that AI was actually just not like a buzzword. It was also behind some of the best technologies in the world, but it's been a few waves of distancing ourselves, coming back to it. And now with ChatGPT, the difference is insane. People just get it. We spent so much time in the past trying to educate people of what AI means in the context of productivity and creativity, but now they just get it. Oh yeah, ChatGPT can help me write stuff better faster. I guess Wizard can do the same for design. We'd no longer have to explain people why AI is important in this design prototyping exploration phase of their workflow. Yeah, definitely a watershed moment in the adoption of AI in in a broader population in pop culture. So how do you see AI transforming not just work on a day-to-day basis? You mentioned Microsoft Office is adopting AI and Google released BARD and everybody's talking about it. But as a founder, as a entrepreneur, how do you see AI transforming how people start and scale companies? From an entrepreneurship standpoint, what I find extremely interesting is the fact that it's basically enabled you to do way more with the same amount of time. And I'm a daily user of ChatGPT. It's just insane uh, how much it helps me with you know, everyday tasks. And I'm a non-English native speaker. So like the value add is just so clear. And our developers also started using GitHub Copilot which is once again, multiplying the productivity significantly. Copilot really works to just write code faster. And so in my eyes, the opportunity of AI for entrepreneurship is really like just to enable two folks to just do the work of five, especially in the early days where you can't hire an army of product people and developers. So yeah, it's really exciting and it couldn't be a better time to start a company, honestly. It definitely feels like kind of having superpowers in that you can do things that would have taken 10x as long or required yeah. a bunch of other people. Now I have an idea and I want to put together, for example, prototype in the example of building, let's say a SaaS product, you know, I can do the design with, with wizard. I can do all the copy with ChatGPT or, or any of those copywriting tools. Like we mentioned, there's all these other components that I can put in. I can create video. I can create social media assets. I could start a company in a day, right? Which is unbelievable. With just one laptop and an internet connection. That's what always baffled my mind, right? No need to buy fancy hardware. Just get a laptop, an internet connection, and you, and you, you get going. It's, it's pretty insane. 
What about on the flip side? So you're talking about 10xing the individual, which is amazing. But yep. on the flip side of that, if you 10x everybody, then the assumption is that means that nine people are now redundant. How do you see the adoption of AI on a broader scale changing society, changing the nature of work? What are your thoughts on that? It's a tricky question because at the end of the day, it's leadership decision. If my team can do 10 times the amount of work, I'd rather keep my team that can do 10 times the amount of work instead of just firing half of them. Because if you can produce more with the same amount of people, you are in a much better position to outcompete your competitors, gain market traction. You know, you can do more. And if you are scaling down your team, you are always at risk that they might actually still use AI to quadruple their productivity, but not fire anyone. So I will be at a disadvantage. So I'm kind of a strong believer in the free market when it comes to this, which is the best companies are, are going to win. And the strategy that they use internally, whether it's just to keep the same team, but have them all use AI augmentation. You know, if this is what is working and bringing company to the top, then I think job security are going to be safe for a while. And on the flip side, if people get fired, it has gotten so much easier to start software businesses that I do hope that more people will take a bet on, hey, I have this cool idea that I've been thinking about for five years. Maybe it's time for me to try it out. Because again, like the cost of starting things out now has gotten so low that the risk is also significantly lower. So it's a bit scary for certain some job security issues, but at the same time, I'm really hopeful that it will ultimately help people create more values with the amount of time they have in the week. I generally am a free market person and a capitalist. I'm concerned though that in this case, the changes are going to be so fundamental to, to society, the exponential growth of productivity. You know, hopefully we're entering into an age of abundance and it's not going to be a dystopic future, but I think that the advancements are just happening too quickly for governments and companies to adjust on a stepwise scale. I don't want to get too far on the tangent. I'm going to ask you the last question on AI. And we're going to come <laughs> back to the growth topic. Just in the last couple of days as we're recording this, a open letter has been circulating yeah. around pausing AI research, specifically in areas that will bring us closer to AGI, artificial general intelligence, which is ostensibly the ultimate goal of open AI. That's what they claim to want to be achieving from, from the outset. It's also uh, potentially the dystopic future that we talked about, where you have super intelligence that outstrips human intelligence and can lead to not very ideal outcomes for humans, potentially. So what's your thoughts on that letter? Over a thousand leading researchers and yep. famously Elon Musk uh, signed it and leading researchers in the space. So what's your thoughts on that, on pausing AI research right now for us to get a handle on where it's going? It's actually something I've been thinking a lot for the past few years. I've been doing AI and machine learning for long enough that this is you know, some of the problems that I've been also like chatting with my co-founders on a regular basis after a hard week of work. One thing that worries me the most is not so much like AGI, but it's like the use of AI with autonomous weapon and warfare and removing the human element from death. But the fact that AGI may be on the corner is a claim that people have made for a long time now. And Every single time someone made that claim, we then realized, oh, okay, we're still like a decade, two decades, a hundred years away from it. And even if you actually survey AI researchers and you ask them, when do you think AGI is going to be? There's such a huge disagreement, even amongst specialists and experts. So I do understand why people are now a bit scared because, well, chat GPT is so intelligent, but still, I mean, I'm still slightly skeptical that we'll get to AGI within the next two decades. I might be completely wrong. And of course, there's always a compounding element of like 
exponential growth and system improving itself and so on and so forth. But I do believe that it's good to have this conversation because we need to put the framework to think about this threat as early as we can, and we might already be too late. But I'm not so sure the threat is so immediate that we need everybody just to stop doing research. Uh, that sounds a bit crazy. And on the other side is that there is a lot of people using LLMs for actually solving really hard problems that can actually really impact the lives of millions of people. Healthcare, you know, security. If you halt the research of LLM, you also impact these research, which are improving the lives of people in theory. I'm glad that this conversation is being brought up because we need to think about this now. But at the same time, it does also feel like it's potentially impacting like research that can benefit humanity. And how the heck are we going to enforce this at the regulatory level, right? The government level. Are people going to be monitoring companies or research lab and they can't train models that are greater than 5 billion parameters? It's really hard to enforce this even on the practical level. So yeah. I'm skeptical. That's the, uh, <laughs> the conclusion, I'd say. <laughs> yeah. Interestingly, Gary Marcus shares your skepticism on how close we are to AGI, but he's also you know, one of the people that are proponents of this letter for a variety of reasons. But I agree with a lot of what you're saying about the benefits of AI and, of course, the enforceability and not just enforceability at the corporation level, but internationally, right? So yeah. if we pause it, what's to say that you know, China or other players in the global economy aren't going to be just getting a head start and certainly doesn't benefit us, that doesn't necessarily benefit the world. A fascinating topic, and we can keep going down that rabbit hole, but I do want to get back to the story of Wizard and the lessons you have around growth. So rewinding back to 2021, when you came out of beta and you opened it up to new users, what channels or growth strategies were most effective for you in increasing adoption, increasing your customer acquisition, and what didn't work and perhaps lessons learned along that? What has always really worked great for us, and it's this is still by far our biggest uh, channel for growth is word of mouth. People speaking about Wizard to other people. Hey, you need to check this out because you, it's going to help you create your prototype. This is going to help you create your MVP. People sharing videos of their experience with the product on social media because the product is very visual. So it's kind of like fit the TikTok, Instagram medium format. We try to kind of like provoke word of mouth sometimes because you don't control it. And if you don't control it, you can't use it to grow at will. A few things that really worked every time we used it is to have an element of a waitlist and exclusivity when we launch new features, when we launch new subproduct, and help people promote this feature to other people in order for their own position on the waitlist to be higher up. This has worked for our alpha. This has worked for our beta. This has worked for our auto designer. So far, it's like our silver bullet. <laughs> what didn't work, and there's a long list, but a few that I clearly remember is that. Hackathon, which was a place we thought, hey, hackathon are great. Entrepreneurs go there to create maybe their first MVP or students about to graduate. And every time we try to put Wizard in a hackathon, of course, we see like really stickiness for a week or two when the MVP is being built and it just dropped and it's just gone. So it's been a good brand awareness growth experiment, but it's been terrible for long-term sustainable growth. The other one that comes to mind is design contests. I know a lot of companies do this. Canva is doing design contests almost every week, I think. Figma, Sketch, Adobe, I think they also tried contests, um, which I think didn't work for them and it didn't work for us. It was a terrible idea. And it's very hard to just get people to compete for the quality of their visual aesthetic and user experience. And we've learned this the hard way. That's probably what would be the best channel and worst channel that we've experienced. Cool. Let's drill into that. So on the word of mouth, yeah? it's a fantastic sign 
that people are referring it that's always positive and, and a signal for strong product market fit when people don't just use it, but love it so much that they, they feel the need to talk about it. But as you mentioned, the downside is you can't really control it that much. So what things have you tried around increasing that tools in the product to make it easy to share, incentivizing referrals like a give and get famous Dropbox example? Or what about influencers? You mentioned TikTok. Are you incentivizing influencers to create these videos on TikTok or on Twitter, or et cetera, to share uh, their usage of, of Wizard? Actually, I will start with the last piece, which is social media influencers. Like historically, it was completely organic. We didn't even know them. If I'm to caricature our team until very recently, it was just a bunch of nerds working on a product and then the product grew itself <laughs> to some extent. But now we actually have an amazing marketing team and they are setting up an affiliate program with influencers, which just started. So we don't know yet whether it's going to be successful. Content has always been also a good long-term-ish growth lever, providing value to people through content. Our customers are not, are not designers and they want to learn how to do design beyond just using our product. Like, what's a good user experience? What's a prototype? And how does a prototype help me go from A to B faster, cheaper? And so this core content to help people around the journey of using Wizard has been really also good for our customers. And I'm a huge believer in content and SEO, so I'm a bit biased towards this side of the coin. Content and programmatic SEO were probably the biggest drivers of growth for Canva and Figma, which are very close yeah. corollaries to what you're doing, right? Being able to build out on scale yeah. these pages for all of the different use cases of their products, similar to, I'm assuming, what you're doing with Wizard and creating all those pages that target long tail keywords in a programmatic way is a really good strategy. Of course, it's difficult and it's competitive. And it takes time. That's the thing. What are your thoughts? Yeah, yeah it takes a lot of time. I think that the hardest stuff with content and SEO is that it takes so long to see results. And I think there is a lot beyond content, but there's all the, let's be friend with the Google alg algorithm at the code level. Let's just make everything fit the Google algorithm criteria to make sure that, hey, they like our site and our content ranks. So it's not just content, it's like optimizing everything that you share online for the Google al algorithm. And probably soon chat GPT, right? Because what I find really funny about content marketing and SEO is that the game already have been changing, which is you no longer want to rank for Google algorithm. You want to rank for the chances to be part of the data set that ChatGPT will use, right? Because you want to be part of the data set so people can retrieve your answer. Or if I'm a bit provocative on the thoughts. That brings up an interesting question around provenance and, and giving credit to the sources. Oh, yeah. So that's a discussion that I want to actually have on an upcoming episode. You have these new search engines like perplexity.ai, u.com. Yeah. You have a few of these that are giving credit to the content creator. And then Bing Assistant also is doing a little bit of that. Um, but obviously, ChatGPT doesn't, right? Yeah. And Google Bard is in between. That's, I think, it's going to be a really interesting question around when you're creating content in the future, who are you creating it for? If the algorithm isn't necessarily linking back to you, is there a purpose to it? But that's another rabbit hole that <laughs> we might get stuck on. So you mentioned the stickiness of the product and thinking about a, a tool like Wizard, one might think that it's useful once I'm building my prototype, I'm going to build it in Wizard. Great. Now I have a startup and I forgot about that tool. A lot of SaaS products run into that struggle where you have a very specific use case, but then you lack stickiness, you lack that, that retention. What did you do around that to A, measure what kept people around and B, build out the product in such a way that it's useful for me, as useful for me as it was on day one, as it is a year later, two years later, et cetera. 
I think this really comes down to basically like finding product market fit, because as you said, you might have product market fit in terms of usage, but true product market fit is like retention, stickiness. And so in the early days, we had a lot of traction or what was perceived as product market fit with startup founders. But as you say, once a startup has done the MVP, they graduate away from the product because suddenly they have cash to hire a design team or a development team. And so instead of just modifying the product, we actually changed the distribution channel and we started going after people that we saw in the product having recurrent need, which is why now our core customers are product teams and marketing teams. Because if you're a marketing team, you're going to need to spin out new landing pages all the time. It might be your weekly job, right? We need a new landing page here. We need to change the format of that content because the CTA for newsletter signup is too low, whatever. This is like a constant work of theirs. And then product team is the same story. If you are maintaining, owning a product within you know, a website, a web mobile app, a SaaS, you constantly need to iterate on the signup flow, the onboarding flow, the general positioning of the different element of the product. And then again, the tool of, of like wizard is like something you're going to use every week, every month of the year. So instead of changing the product, we literally just changed the distribution and, and market side of the equation, basically. And that worked pretty well. Really good point that product market fit is often more about retention than it is about adoption. A lot of products can have flash in the pan success with adoption, you know, buzzy viral product, but they don't last if there's no recurring value. Yeah, exactly. Was there a moment where you knew that this is going to work or is it more of a kind of continuum of iterating and improving incrementally over time? You never know if it's going to work. We, we don't even know if it's going to work now because a startup life is always uncertainty mixed with successes, right? So who knows if it's going to work? <laughs> but what really like inflated our confidence that we were onto something is really like by looking at this like retention curve with our core ICP and seeing this, you know, flatten quickly and stay flat for as long as possible. And this is where we're like, okay, it's working. These folks are using this weekly and they keep using it and they keep inviting new people and then they keep creating new stuff. And then they start complaining because their projects are so big that no performance is becoming an issue. And that's like the good problems we wanted to have to be convinced that, okay, there's so much willingness to use a tool that people are entering like the boundaries of what our tech can handle. And also like just ask people. The Sean Ellis survey has been really helpful for asking people, how would you feel if you could no longer use the product? And that has been like a super good tool to know whether we're on the right track or the wrong track and segment users accordingly. Yeah, very valuable tool. And it's uh, a recurring theme that we've had on this podcast as we're exploring product market fit. What does it mean? How do you know if you have it? And all the questions around that. And I think that this kind of fairy tale that is told around, <laughs> uh, you know, suddenly people are banging down your door and you can't serve them fast enough. I don't think that that's real for most companies. I think that what you're talking about of measuring uh, adoption and retention, measuring net promoter score, or like you mentioned, um, how disappointed would you be if you could no longer use the product, the Sean Ellis model, which was famously adopted by Superhuman and others. I think that those tell you a lot more about product market fit and the continued viability of the company. Um, let's talk about funding for a little bit. You've raised over 18 million total across a couple of rounds, most recently a Series A from, was it Insight Partners, I think? Yeah, that's correct. You raised perhaps in a little bit of a different time, 2021, where money was potentially free <laughs> or almost free. Now it's a little bit different, certainly at the later stages. So any lessons learned? And also, how are you thinking about what's the next step? Should you raise a Series B or when should you consider raising a Series B? 
Oh man, fundraising. I should, I could also talk about this probably for hours because first time founders, we had to learn the hard way how to fundraise and, and what exactly does it mean to be fundraising. And so for founders listening, I would say the best thing you need to realize when you start fundraising or at least thinking about fundraising is to nerd out about VC. You need to understand what exactly are VCs doing and why would they give you money? And once you understand deeply the relationship between why do they need to invest in companies and who are the LPs giving them money to invest, once you understand their side of the equation, it's much easier to just have an honest discussion and just chat about how your company could basically help their fund and themselves as partner shine. But yeah, fundraising right now is definitely a complicated discussion, especially when you are later stage, Series C and later. But if you are pre-Series A, I think it's a no-brainer. The market is still pretty hot. All funds have moved early stage. So if you're either raising your first check or your seed or your Series A, I would personally look at the market the same way I would have looked at it in 2020, 2019. Not 2021, because it was crazy, but 2019, 2018, people are deploying capital. There's a lot of funds that have raised money in 2021, like the rest of us that are still deploying. So just be aware that valuation will be a lot more on par with what you would have heard of in 2016, 2018. But otherwise, sure. business as usual. <laughs> yeah, good advice. What about for you guys? Are you thinking of capitalizing on the buzz of the moment with AI to raise your Series B? Or are you being more cautious and conservative in just looking at the business and your run rate? We like to keep things small in terms of team and we didn't like overhire like crazy. And so we have a comfortable runway, which means that we have time to figure out why do we want to raise and when do we want to raise and what is the partner we want to raise with? Because every fund is different. Every investor is different. And what we really care about is finding the right fit with regard to the needs of the business for the next two years. And because ultimately you're going to work with investors for a long time until IPO. So you want to make sure these people intimately know you and know the business and can help the business beyond just providing cash because cash burn fast, but people are the one that provide the value. Yeah. Very important point about the long-term relationship with your investors. Know who you're getting into bed with. And yeah. <laughs> a thoughtful approach, I think, is always starting from like, why am I raising this money? What am I going to do with this money? Right? If raising X amount allows me to capture a new market or accelerate growth by certain factor, then maybe it's the right move. And again, it depends on the partner and the timing and the valuation, and a lot of other factors. But if it's just raising money to raise money to hit that next milestone, that's where you fall into that trap. What's the grand vision for Wizard? What keeps us really excited is really like design is not going anywhere. All of us consuming apps, we became so picky about what we expect in terms of user experience, visual aesthetic, and the general feel of using an app or software. And what you see all across the board is that design is becoming such a core component of success for all software companies that you can no longer just have designers do design because they don't have the bandwidth. They already are all submerged with work. And so the fact that more and more people need to take part of design is really exciting for us because ultimately we want to be the tool that in five years from now is enabling all these people to do design. And of course, some people will only need to do design once a quarter, once a month, but some every day of the week. Sometimes we like to joke around that we want to be the PowerPoint of design. And this is just saying that PowerPoint is on every single computer in the entire world and everybody know how to use it. So it's the grand vision. We want to be empowering the design revolution if we were to use a very cliche term. What about moving beyond, you know, since we're talking about the future, I believe that we're probably moving away from a kind of device-centric world and interfaces will be more 
virtual, whether it's augmented reality or metaverse or holograms, those type of interfaces, can those be designed with Wizard? Is that part of the, the future vision? I have a lot of loaded opinions on this space. Ultimately, even if this kind of interface, there's still graphics, there's still elements right. that are represented on the screen, on the screen, on this spatial 3D environment to enable people to take actions. And this is just a UI, right? It's just instead of being 2D, 3D. So technically, it wouldn't be like that far out to just apply the same kind of piece of technology to a 3D interface world rather than 2D. Even if you look at 3D video games, VR, AR applications today, there is always this like 2D interface element on top because this is what feels the most natural for people to interact with. It's like, it's like books, which are to replicate what we like in paper in, in, on the screen. So yeah, 100%, we can definitely help folks create interfaces for their 3D experiences. Should that become the de facto interface in 10 years? 10 years, possibly sooner, possibly longer. You but, think so? <laughs> uh, I think so. I don't know if we're going to completely move into the metaverse, but I do think that I'm actually much more excited about and interested in AR, augmented yeah. reality, than I am in fully immersive virtual experiences and 3D experiences. I think that with the advancements of AI as a communication method with technology, we don't need the keyboard anymore if we can talk, right? So we don't need the screen anymore if we can just see the information projected somewhere and you know moving to a true ai as a sidekick world where you can just gesture a command or thinking about like neuralink where you can connect directly with brain impulses to get some sort of feedback loop it doesn't have to be attached to a device or a screen but who knows i'm just projecting my ideas as a child would on the future and imagining what it would look like all ex very exciting and fascinating stuff tony but we're coming to the end of our time here. So we'd like to close out with a lightning round, if you'll indulge me. Let's do it. <laughs> what book, podcast, or newsletter do you find yourself recommending most often? Oh, the book, definitely Sean Ellis and Morgan Brown, Hacking Growth. I mean, this is the one I end up recommending to everybody. This piece of paper has been tremendously helpful in our journey trying to scale a product company. So I always end up recommending this one. And I can see that it's well-worn. So you're definitely <laughs> yeah, making the sure. most of it. What makes for a great board member? Transparency, openness, and humility. I can't stand people that think too high of themselves. Let's be humble. We're all trying to learn how to do something. And so, yeah, I would pick those three adjectives. Absolutely. The person that beats their own drum the loudest is probably has the least to say uh, in most cases. Um, who's a, a mentor of yours that's had the most impact on your life? I've never been like a mentor person. I like to gather as many different opinions as possible every time I have a problem. But I would say actually our first investor, the first person that actually betted on Wizard, Evan Nisselson from LDV Capital. I like to say that he's the guy that kind of like turned my co-founder and I into entrepreneur. Like he took a bunch of engineers and then turned them into entrepreneur. Yeah, that's probably what was the closest to a mentor that we've had in our journey trying to build Wizard. Amazing. What SaaS tools, aside from Wizard, do you use <laughs> every day? Or what are your top five SaaS tools that you love? Notion. We live and breathe in Notion. Slack wouldn't be able to live without it. We have a love and hate relationship with Zoom, but it's been tremendously helpful since we've been starting as a remote first company. So yeah, that's probably the three. Yeah. Slack, Notion, and Zoom. Got it. What's one thing that you'd like to change about the startup world? That's a good one. I've always had a hard time with the focus on Silicon Valley as the center of the world in terms of technological progress. And I love Silicon Valley. I always loved going there. And then, you know, the power of the network is really huge there. But there are so many 
other places where great innovation is happening. And I don't understand why there's still always this kind of focus on the center of AI Silicon Valley. And then you look at TechCrunch and you can see on papers, so many papers or great techs being built completely outside of the United States even. We all are here because of Silicon Valley in the 90s, but I think times have changed now. Got it. If you could have coffee with any historical figure, who would you choose? Whew, that's a good one. Honestly, like top of mind, probably Stephen Hawking, actually, the physicist. What would you guys chat about? Yeah, we'd love to chat about his view on the meaning of life, our place in the universe, <laughs> all those kind of like philosophical questions. Awesome. Tony, this has been an absolute pleasure. Really enjoyed learning about Wizard. Thank you for sharing all of your experience and insights that you've gained along the way. How can people find you if they want to continue the conversation and any last thoughts that you have for our audience? Well, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. And there's been a few rabbit holes we almost got too deep into, which is always like a good sign of a good flow. People can find me on Twitter or LinkedIn, you know, just type my name in Google and hopefully you can, you can find me. And of course, I can't leave without saying, if you are trying to build something and you're struggling with the ideation phase, please use Wizard and, and see if we can help you go from zero to one and then one to 10. Amazing. Well, thank you, Tony. We're going to be watching your success and wishing you all the best. Hope to stay in touch. Thanks for having me. That's a wrap. Thanks so much for listening and joining me on this learning adventure. Don't forget to hit that follow or subscribe button so you get notified when we release new episodes. My goal with this podcast is to share practical knowledge with startup founders and growth practitioners. Let me know how I'm doing so far and how I can improve the show. Hit me up via email at hello at pmfpod.com or find me on LinkedIn or Twitter. I always love to hear from you. And if you love this podcast and want to help us out, spread the word by leaving a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you love to listen and share it on social media too. That really does help. And finally, don't forget to check out growth.co. That's growth without the O.co if you're considering a fractional CMO for your startup. For those celebrating Passover, I'd like to wish you a Chag Kasher V'Sameach. To any Christians in the audience, wishing you a happy Easter. And to my Muslim friends, Ramadan Mubarak. Until next time, wishing you rocket ship success in your startup journey.